greetings and welcome to episode 50 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. 50 episodes, quite a milestone. If anything, I'd have to say it's probably a testament to the richness of East Asian history that we have so much to talk about, so much to cover, and we're still not done 50 episodes in, and we still have a long ways to go before we will have covered uh, uh, the bulk of uh, what I think are some of the the most important themes, uh, the movers and shakers of East Asian history, from the Yellow River Valley all the way until Japan sort of takes over that mantle in the first half of the 20th century. Well, I hope you'll agree with me that for episode 50, we have a topic that perhaps is worthy of such a milestone, technology and film in the Japanese empire. All right. Uh, today we're going to be looking at how uh, certain types of me- uh, media, certain types of technology can serve as a window through which we can glimpse and reinforce some of the uh, uh, sort of political and economic themes that we've been exploring, uh, uh, you know, without a whole lot of illustrative examples from society. Um, And now we're going to be able to give you uh, flesh out a little bit of that skeletal political and economic narrative with other aspects of society that uh, people would have been exposed to, that they would have encountered if they had, uh, if they lived anywhere within reach of the Japanese empire uh, during its 50 years. So for technology, the, the lens that we're going to use is going to be telegraphy the telegraph. Um, This would have been the chief means of efficient and swift and affordable communication um, in the era before you have uh, television, uh, the era before you actually have long-distance phone capabilities that are available for the majority of the population at an affordable rate. Uh, The telegraph was the way that you went. How can the telegraph teach us something about how the Japanese empire developed from beginning to end. Um, As it turns out, uh, it can teach us quite a lot or else we wouldn't have this topic for our episode. So let's begin at the beginning, as we always should, and try to understand where telegraphy comes from and when the Japanese first encounter it uh, and when they first start to co-opt this technology for their own purposes. Um, It actually begins in the very beginning, all right, when you get Commodore Matthew Perry uh, arriving in Japan uh, in the 1850s. He actually brings with him two telegraph sets and sets up two posts uh, that are a mile apart from one another and gives a display. He shows the shogun and his top advisors, this is this amazing technology uh, that we've invented abroad. And, uh, you know, he's obviously hoping that this will pique their interest. This is a a time-honored tactic that we saw uh, many, many times Previously, over the past 70 years or so, most famously, it was on display when Lord McCartney, the British envoy Lord Lord McCartney, went to Beijing in 1793 and was hoping to be able to uh, uh, wow the Qianlong Emperor with the scientific uh, prowess of the West and convince him, you know, we're strong, we're we're different, we're unique, we're not just barbarians, and you should uh, want to give in to our demands, and perhaps you should even be a little bit afraid of us. Um, And so he brought all these scientific gadgets and whatnot, thinking this is going to blow the mind of a stagnating oriental despot. And Tianlong famously wrote back to Lord McCartney and the British, well, technically to King George uh, III, uh, who had sent Lord McCartney, 
Um, you know, I have seen the trifles and curiosities that you have sent along, and I see that there is nothing here uh, that our empire desires. We are self-sufficient. We have everything we could possibly want, uh, and I'm not impressed by these little baubles that you've, uh, you know, these shiny, uh, clever little baubles that you've sent before me. They're merely clever. Well, uh, Matthew Perry thinks he's going to do the exact same thing. Uh, setbacks in the past did n- do not deter uh, later generations from trying the exact same tactic, and Perry does the exact same thing. Uh, The Shogun does seem to have been impressed with the science of telegraphy, but at this time period, the 1850s, Tokugawa, the Tokugawa state is way too decentralized and does not have the ability to make large capital investments to actually build its own telegraphs, especially when you consider that the uh, you know two-thirds of the Japanese islands are governed by these semi-autonomous daimyo um, that the shogun, you know, he, he can't just say, here, uh, you're going to build these things all throughout uh, your realms now um, and facilitate the influence of Edo uh, everywhere uh, throughout the prefectures. That's not how it works. Okay. Now, after the Meiji Restoration, however, 1868, uh, the new Meiji leaders will realize that telegraphy is an ideal vehicle for helping to centralize the state from a decentralized state to a highly centralized state and for integrating these very same domains uh, because now you have this political willpower um, that has begun with the leading daimyo of the formerly autonomous domains themselves, Satsuma, Choshu, who helped lead the 1868 coup and restore the Meiji emperor. Um, you know, they themselves are making an example of their home domains. Remember, I think it was the daimyo of Satsuma was the first to say, okay, we will relinquish the semi-autonomous status of our daimyo and uh, turn it into a prefecture. That was, of course, a gambit so they could absorb uh, the northern islands of the of the Ryukyu archipelago under their new Kagoshima prefecture. Nevertheless, this is the trend things are going in. We're going to centralize our state. That's the only way we compete we, that we can compete with the Westerners, and telegraphy will be seen as something that can help facilitate this very important political goal. Now, the timing is perfect because the 1860s, all right, sees the unprecedented expansion of telegraphic technology in the Western world. Uh, Meiji Restoration, 1868. Just two years earlier, the transatlantic cable became stable. What is the transatlantic cable? It's a submarine cable, a cable that goes that is laid under the ocean, the North Atlantic Ocean, and it goes from the uh, furthest, most western tip of the uh, uh, of Ireland uh, to the easternmost tip of Newfoundland, um, and uh, the shortest possible distance because it's going to be hard to keep the submarine cable stable in this day and age, um, and that facilitates telegraphs uh, making the leap across the Atlantic from the old world to the new world that had first been be, uh, experimented with in, in the late 1850s. By 1860, uh, 1866, the transatlantic cable is stable. All right, Wonderful timing for the Meiji Restoration in 1868, just two years later. In 1870, the British are able to connect uh, their home islands with their Indian colony uh, by extending a combination of overland cables and submarine cables through the Red and Arabian Seas. Uh, So you can see the technology is booming at the exact same time that the Tokugawa state has been overthrown and you have a new centralizing uh, reformist zeal. Uh, We're going to westernize at all costs now. The famous Japanese uh, reformer, Fukuzawa Yukichi, 
was very enthusiastic about the strategic possibilities of the telegraph. In 1875, seeing the, the, the leaps and bounds that telegraphy had made, uh, te te telegraphic infrastructure had made uh, in the Western world in just the past decade, he says, quote, although there have been many inventions in recent years, nothing is greater than the telegraph. When the telegraph serves as the nerve system of a country, the central telegraph office is like the brain, and branch offices elsewhere are like nerve ends. As Japan sharpens its new nerve system, its body gains new vitality. All right, telegraphy will become the uh, revitalizing force of the new Japanese state itself. In 1870, Japan opens its own telegraph service. Uh, now, they don't have the means or the technology or the money to do this themselves, so they have to hire the British to come in and build the first telegraph line, which, uh, not surprisingly, is also going to help serve the foreign interest. Uh, the first telegraph line goes from Tokyo to Yokohama, uh, not far to the south. Remember Yokohama in our very first lecture on the Japanese Empire? We talked about that was the first treaty port that was opened up with the uh, Treaty of Amity and Commerce in 1858. The Westerners said we want to you know, uh, have our own treaty port where we get extraterritoriality and all that stuff. Um, and the uh, shogun very strategically made sure it's going to be a, a city that's close enough to Tokyo he can keep their eye on them but not in Tokyo and also as far away as possible from some of the daimyo who he was afraid the uh, British uh, might actually end up having conflict with if they bumped into one another. Okay. Um, however, even though the British build that line from Tokyo to Yokohama, uh, subsequently, throughout all of East Asia, the uh, uh, greatest player in the game of telegraphic infrastructure, uh, who, the people who are going to have a monopoly over most of uh, telegraph lines throughout East Asia, is going to be the Danes. This is always is sort of one of these surprising, interesting footnotes of history. Um, it's not the British. You think it's going to be the British or the French or the Americans. No, it's the Danes. In 1871, the Great Northern Telegraph Company. Get used to that name. We're going to be hearing a lot about the Great Northern Telegraph Company. In 1871, it's the Great Northern Telegraph Company run by Danes. This is Denmark. All right. Connects Yokohama to Nagasaki. Remember, Nag Nagasaki was the earliest uh, area where foreigners could legally reside on an artificial island called Dejima that was set out outside of Nagasaki. That's where the, the, the Dutch, the Portuguese, uh, back during the Tokugawa era, 17th, 18th century, uh, where they had to live if they wanted to do any sort of trade whatsoever. Uh, that's on the island of Kyushu. We're getting close to Korea, the southwestern end of the Japanese islands. Uh, the Great Northern Telegraph Company in 1871 connects Yokohama, which is basically Tokyo, remember, to Nagasaki, um, and then Vladivostok and Shanghai. Right? And you can see once more, this is serving foreigners' interests. This is one of the problems you have. Uh, if you have to rely on foreigners to uh, uh, build your infrastructure, then they're going to do it in such a way where not only are they taking your money uh, to do this, um, sure, it's going to benefit you, but they're also going to try to make sure that it benefits them as well. Yokohama to Nagasaki, those are the two towns that are most closely associated with foreign business and foreign residents in Japan. And then where do you go after Nagasaki? Vladivostok. That's the Russian ice-free harbor just to the north of today's North Korea, the Korean Peninsula. All right, so you're connecting to the Russian Empire. And then Shanghai, that's the premier foreign treaty port in China as well. That's your earliest link when you hire the Great Northern Telegraph Company. Okay, so the result of all these early initiatives is that, you know, within 
three years of the Meiji Restoration. My God, how fast is that? Japan is now linked to the world through the East Asian mainland. But unfortunately for Tokyo, all the expertise and all the capital is in the hands of foreigners, especially the Danes through their Great Northern Telegraph Company. Before Japan can finance their own international lines, there's a daunting task ahead. They want to eventually uh, displace the Danes. They want to be the premier power in all of Asia and own the infrastructure and make the infrastructure, not have to rely on foreign expertise. Uh, before you can even think about extending your, your technological expertise internationally, you have to first consolidate it at home. Okay, so the 1870s, this first full decade uh, of the Meiji era, sees the integration of the first telecommunications network in Japan, all right, domestically. By 1875, just seven years after the Meiji Restoration, uh, 4,300 miles of telegraph line had been uh, uh, spread from Hokkaido in the north to Kyushu in the far southwest. All the Japanese islands are connected by the, by the, by the middle of the 1870s. However, once again, even domestically, this is all done by hiring foreign experts, paying a foreigner to build the infrastructure domestically. Always strategically a risky gambit, um, and economically, they then also have a big say in uh, how these lines are going to be managed. All right, um, so where do we go from here? Okay, uh, the Japanese ability to build telegraphic services telecommunication lines, infrastructure outside of Japan with their own capital so that they're not totally relying on foreigners. All right. It's basically going to be non-existent for another 20 years. This is a frustrating time for the modernizing Japanese. Okay. Uh, where are the Japanese going to get uh, a pile of money that drops from the heavens into your lap and you say, hey, now we have money that we can spend on massively expensive infrastructure projects. If you guess the Sino-Japanese War, you are correct. 1895, it's going to be the indemnity from the Qing Dynasty in the wake of Beijing losing this first Sino-Japanese War with Japan that will give Japan its first uh, financial windfall. All right. As in almost everything else, 1895 marks the definitive beginning of the Japanese empire, not just politically, not just, you know, lines on a map, geography and whatnot. Uh, also economically in the sense, okay, what this symbolizes, 1895 symbolizes not only the acquisition of Taiwan by, by an imperialist war, uh, it also starts the process of the Japanese empire becoming stronger and uh, extending its tentacles over Asia uh, on the strength of resources siphoned off from the Chinese mainland. In this sense, I often like to draw a parallel between Japan, the 50 years of the Japanese empire and the old nomads of pre-modern Chinese history before the Industrial Revolution. If you listen to the first, first you know, 25-odd uh, episodes of this podcast when we were doing ancient Chinese history, you learned about the recurring role, very influential role, of non-Chinese nomads from basically present-day Mongolia uh, or Manchuria who would continually sweep down into the heartland um, and uh, basically, you know, uh, leverage the resources of the, of the wealthy agricultural heartland uh, to set up their own hybrid states that were a combination of nomads and Han, usually northern Han. And that's why most of the capitals are in the north of the big empires are in the north, not in the south, because they're closer to the nomadic homeland and they're defending against recurrent nomadic threats. 
All right, Japan is essentially doing the same thing. If you think about it from a big, you know, bird's eye perspective, uh, they are the next incarnation after the Industrial Revolution. Once the Industrial Revolution makes the nomadic way of lifestyle basically obsolete and uh, destroys their military edge, you know, horses essentially, um, the Japanese are going to be the first post-industrial uh, successor to this dynamic of a outsider, in this case also a northern outsider, a northeastern outsider, coming in and trying to uh, uh, sink their claws into the wealth of northern and central China, um, and then setting up their own new political entity in China. All right, um, and here we're seeing this uh, going to be reflected in telecommunications technology. The big picture is Japan is developing its own empire, uh, essentially with Chinese resources. Um, and the flip side of that is that it denies China the opportunity to do that themselves, <laughs> uh, to sustain the Chinese empire um, and consolidate it and keep out foreign threats with their own resources. Uh, those resources are hemorrhaging, and they're hemorrhaging first and foremost to the Japanese, who immediately reinvest them in new territorial acquisitions and you know uh, technological investments that the Chinese then can't do. So let's look at the uh, imperial expansion uh, of Japan through the lens of uh, telecommunication structure, uh, more specifically telegraphy. Okay, uh, the geopolitical expansion of the Japanese Empire will be mirrored pretty much exactly uh, lockstep with their telecommunications expansion. All right, uh, telecommunications infrastructure, uh, the ability to build it will be a direct barometer. Uh, of Japanese imperial strength. It's the litmus test, the ability to design, build, and pay for communications infrastructure, so essential, on your own terms uh, throughout the world. To what extent can you do this? And they're going to be quite successful by the 1940s. Japan will be in control of telecommunications infrastructure for 10% of the Earth's landmass. That's 10 times greater than the size of the, the Japanese home islands. Uh, they will be in control of telecommunications infrastructure for one-third of the global population through their colonies abroad, chiefly on the East Asian mainland. All right. Now, Japanese telecommunications expansion will begin in Taiwan, obviously, the first uh, formal colony, uh, colony, and it will begin with Beijing's money. All right, Beijing opened their wallet and paid the indemnity in 1895, and that's what the Japanese are going to use. All right, so what is the situation with, with telegraphy in Taiwan by this point? Uh, Taiwan actually already had one telegraph line. Uh, where was it built to? Well, the natural, cultural, linguistic, economic orientation of most Taiwanese in the 1890s was back to the province from whence their ancestors had migrated over the Taiwan Strait. That means Fujian province. Uh, Fujian province, uh, one of the biggest cities in Fujian is the city of Fuzhou, and the first telegraph line in Taiwan went westward across the Taiwan Strait to Fuzhou, and it was built, surprise, surprise, by a, uh, a combination of the Danes and the British. What this means is when the uh, Japanese take over Taiwan in 1895, the first Japanese governor general has to communicate with Tokyo through China, a telegraph line that goes first to China and then to like Shanghai. And then to uh, Vladivostok, Nagasaki, uh, Yokohama, Tokyo. This is not ideal. All right? You're using foreign telegraph stations, foreign-run technology. That's bad enough. But then this technology then further goes through another country, another Asian country, China. All right? So this is not ideal. So Japan then decides with our money, uh, we're going to build our first line. And it's going to be an impressive one. 
And they say, we decline British offers of assistance. The British, of course, very entrepreneurial. Hey, we'll help you build your first telegraph line straight from Tokyo to Taiwan. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But this is a submarine line. That's even more sophisticated than overland telegraph lines. Surely you need our help. Uh, Tokyo says, uh-uh, we have money now. <laughs> All right, we got our own sugar daddy, and it's China. And they've given us money as a result of us beating them in war. And so Japan then buys a cable lane ship, a maritime submarine cable lane ship, trains its own technicians, and then builds its first line beyond the Japanese islands. By 1896, Tokyo is connected with Okinawa. Then onward, by 1897, just two years after taking over Taiwan, they have laid down a submarine cable that reaches all the way from Japan to Taiwan. Now, of course, this has facilitated the assistance of the Ryukyuan archipelago. It's not like the North Atlantic, uh, uh, the uh, transatlantic cable, which is, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles uh, with no islands in between whatsoever. Uh, you have islands all along the way, but essentially still, you still have to have submarine laying capabilities to get to Taiwan. It's not a contigu contiguous landmass, and it does span over 700 miles. Okay, uh, from uh, the southwestern island of Kyushu all the way to the northeastern tip of Taiwan. Uh, this island, this uh, uh, submarine cable is built with the money that was gotten from the Qing indemnity. All right, now Japan has built its own line to its first formal colony, and it joins once more. It joins, this is another distinction, it joins the select club of states that have submarine-capable lane abilities. Remember, there are several uh, markers of your status that you've made it in the modern world. Uh, you know, having your own colony, uh, winning wars against uh, other white nations like Russia, uh, being able to lay a submarine cable to one of your own colonies, that is definitely one of these boxes that you want to check off uh, to say, yep, we've done it. We've arrived in the world. This earns the respect of other major empires and distinguishes us from, you know, the oriental despot stagnating empires of the Ottoman Empire and the Chinese Empire, chiefly. Next up on the Japanese agenda, you've already reached uh, Taiwan now, Korea. Now, the Japanese desired their own direct cable line to Korea since the 1880s. They already knew this was very important. We need to have our own telecommunications infrastructure with uh, the Korean Peninsula. Um, they wanted to get there as early as the 1880s because that's when they first began to compete fairly intensely with the Qing Dynasty in order to uh, curry the most amount of influence on the Korean Peninsula. However, before Japan can actually get in the game in Korea, uh, the great northern telegraph company, the Danes, had already monopolized and built most of the Korean lines. Uh, as a result, Japan has to be content basically to just negotiate lease terms that allow them to use pre-existing uh, telegraphic infrastructure that the Danes have already built and they own um, and then try to pressure the Koreans um, to commission the Danes to build another line to the south that would then formally connect the Japanese islands with the Korean peninsula. All right. Uh, Japan, as again, as we saw elsewhere, in the beginning in Korea, they're still working through Danish expertise and through Danish-owned infrastructure. Uh, not an ideal scenario. This becomes an even greater concern during the uh, uh, Russo-Japanese War in 1904 and 1905, all right, the big war when Japan finally beats the Western power and raises eyebrows everywhere throughout the world, uh, the, the, the 
the Japanese diplomats and, and uh, military strategists are very afraid that uh, the Danes, they say, they're probably sharing our telegrams. Because remember, th- these wars are fought in Northeast Asia, in and around Korea, Manchuria, and whatnot. Uh, they say, you know, if we have to use Danish-built uh, telegra- uh, telegraphic lines, uh, almost certainly the Danes are going to, they're more sympathetic to Russia than us. They're probably sharing our telegrams with the Russia. We need our own independently constructed telegraph line in Korea. Here's a quote from one of the Japanese military officers demanding Japanese telecommunications autonomy after the outbreak of the war with Russia. Quote, all countries of the world consider autonomy and communications a basic tenet in national defense. All aspire to possess their own communication systems. In the early years of the Meiji era, Japan gave in to the Great Northern Company, which represented Russian interests. And until today, Japan has been unable to break away from its grip. At present, Japan is looked upon as a formidable power. However, it could not even construct a submarine cable for the purpose of joint military operations in Korea. Isn't that a disgrace to the reputation of Japan? Now, one possible solution about this time uh, appeared in the form of what was known as the Marconi Wireless Telegraph, which was first successfully tested in 1897. Uh, What are the pros and cons of a wireless telegraph? Well, the pros is that it's cheaper investment. Okay, you don't need a whole lot of actual physical infrastructure uh, for wireless telegraph. You need stations where you send and receive messages, but you don't necessarily need all those poles and all that wire um, that, you know, that, that, that then spans through foreign countries and the governments and jurisdictions that owns that land. Um, and, you know, you can still achieve fairly successful, swift delivery of a message. Okay, Um, and the Marconi wireless telegraph system will be installed on some of the Japanese uh, naval ships um, when they're uh, engaged in the war with Russia in 1904. Uh, That will be one of the ways that they try to solve their uh, handicap in the realm of telecommunications, and they're worried that the Danes are sharing all of their telegrams. Uh, They will make use of Marconi wireless telegraphs during that war with Russia. The cons, however, uh, are fairly big with wireless. Wireless is much easier to intercept. Okay, and if uh, you know if it's really important, if it's a strategic telegraph, you can't take that risk. Uh, and so, even though the wireless can be useful in certain circumstances, um, you know, especially when it's a naval battle and other countries are also using wireless, nevertheless, um, you're still going to need landlines if you want to sh- ensure absolute secrecy in wartime. And it's going to be the Japanese over reliance on cheaper wireless, uh, chiefly in the South Seas, in Micronesia, um, and in Southeast Asia, um, in World War II, that will lead to many of their codes being easily broken by the United States. Um, You know, they have the ability to lay submarine lines, uh, eventually they'll get the ability to do overland lines as well throughout, you know, uh, uh, foreign countries, uh, but this is still expensive. Um, and uh, many points the Japanese will still say, you know what, we need to rely on the wireless. Um, and during World War II, that will be a major problem because it's, uh, it's much more vulnerable to being hacked than uh, submarine lines, uh, submarine cables, or overland lines. So in Korea, the Danes stubbornly refuse to sell their telecommunication lines to Japan. Uh, how are you going to resolve this situation when the foreigners own everything and you can't do anything about it? Well, the 1910 annexation of Korea uh, will eventually solve this problem very nicely for the Japanese. Uh, once you actually own the land and it's part of your empire, uh, then you have more leverage to dictate terms to the foreign companies that operate there. Uh, one other thing that's going to happen uh, when the Japanese take over Korea 
is not only will they uh, uh, begin to uh, gain influence over the lines set up by the Great Northern Telegraph Company, they will also uh, set up an uh, intricate and pervasive telephone network in Korea, chiefly for security and police services. It's not for the Korean people, uh, it's for the Japanese military, the Japanese police services, uh, because as you know from previous episodes, resistance will be uh, early and often from the Koreans, um, and phones uh, are going to be seen as a, a, a highly important strategic asset for the Japanese security services to have, and the phone system in Korea will be the most developed network in the entire Japanese empire. Some historians think that the phones uh, were, were, were more widely developed in Korea than they were in the Japanese home islands. After Korea, your next target is mainland China. And here, once more, uh, Japan is completely stonewalled in China by the Danish Great Northern Company uh, until 1915. What happens in 1915? Well, cast your mind back a few episodes. Remember the 21 demands and World War I, sidelining most of the Western powers and giving Japan its opening to dictate terms to the Chinese and finally sink their claws further without the distractions and countermoves of other foreign powers. Uh, in 1915, that's when the Japanese are finally able to negotiate for the rights to get permission from Yuan Shikai and his successors to build a line directly from Shanghai to Nagasaki. All right, and this will be Japan's first wholly owned and operated foreign telecommunications line. Remember, the one to Taiwan was not foreign. It wasn't in a foreign land. It didn't connect to a foreign land because Taiwan by then belonged to Japan. Um, this will be quickly followed by, as, as you know, the Japanese seizure of Germany's colonial interest in Qingdao um, and the Shandong Peninsula. And so Japan then will take the telegraph line uh, that originally went from the town of Qingdao on the Shandong Peninsula, uh, and that, that, that used to go uh, south to Shanghai. Japan will sever that line, the, the German line, uh, and reconnect it and reorient it towards the Japanese island so it goes from Qingdao to Nagasaki. All right, then they will add another line from Dalian. Remember Dalian on the Liaodong Peninsula, uh, uh, the, the biggest city there. It's where the South Manchurian Railway Company terminates at its uh, southernmost point, right? One of the biggest ports in East Asia throughout the Japanese Empire. They'll build another line from Dalian to Nagasaki as well. All right, so you can see here, this is strategically very, very critical. By 1915, uh, with the Westerners sidelined, German interest taken away, it's not just that they got uh, German beer, the German brewery in Qingdao. Now they have a, a, a monopoly over tele, uh, telegraphic services on those two peninsulas that are basically the gateway to Beijing. You go through the Bohai Gulf, and those are the two peninsulas, Shandong Peninsula, Liaodong Peninsula, that frame your entrance. And if you've got lines, then the chief lines in Qingdao and Dalian are going east to Nagasaki, then you've got a huge strategic advantage. Okay? All right. Now, after all this, when you talk about Manchuria. All right, uh, Japanese telecommunications innovations in Manchuria. As you know, Manchuria will eventually become Japan's you know, equivalent of British India. It was their jewel in the crown. It's where enormous profits and uh, innovation and industrial factories, all this sort of stuff is going to be developed. Okay, now the Japanese desire to break out of the Western stranglehold in telecommunications. Uh, you had your first glimpses of Japanese autonomy uh, in 1915 um, with World War I, but they're really gonna realize their ambition to completely displace and one-up the Westerners in Manchuria. 
All right, and they likely would have extended this beyond Manchuria if the Japanese didn't lose in World War II as well. Okay, before the creation of Manchukuo in 1932, Japan had played the telecommunications game by other people's rules. All right, as a result, the British and the Danes owned the majority of the world's telecommunication cables, and Japan was always playing catch up. And they had finally begun to sort of, you know, leap over the British and Danes in limited context in East Asia by the, by, by the time of World War I. All right? But still, this wasn't enough. All right? Some of the domestic critics said that, quote, East Asian countries do not possess their own ears when they listen or their own mouths when they speak. In order to truly stand tall among the great powers... Japan needs to extricate itself from constantly playing technological catch-up and attempt to take the lead in scientific innovation itself. We're not just the best mimickers. We're not just the best understudies of the West. We can actually innovate beyond what Western scientists are able to do. What am I talking about? I'm talking about fundamentally changing the nature of telecommunications technology toward a distinct Japanese standard. All right? Uh, telecommunications infrastructure that will be incompatible with Western infrastructure, a wholly different type of technology where you force people that you have influence over to choose between our version and their version. And if we've got the more guns pointed at you, you're going to choose our version. And then that will be incompatible with the Western version. This is permanent. It's long-term. You'll be forever oriented towards our country, not this distant foreign country. Now, part of the inspiration for this is uh, the same inspiration that led to the takeover of Manchuria in the first place. The Japanese realization during the post-World War I economic depression that uh, takes over the world and chiefly Europe and America, um, they realized that we're pretty much entirely dependent on uh, colonial resources in parts of Southeast Asia that largely are under the control of the Westerners. All right, the Dutch have Indonesia. Uh, the British and French have most of Southeast Asia. Um, you know, and uh, very key resources that we need are only available from there. Gutta percha, a rubber-like substance only grown in Southeast Asia. Gutta percha was used to coat submarine cables so that they didn't rust and, you know, break apart under the uh, uh, salty and pretty harsh climate of, uh, of uh, the oceans being submerged 24-7 in the oceans. Um, the British had a virtual monopoly over this resource, gutta percha. How do you avoid such potentially crippling dependency? It's not just the expertise. It's the fundamental raw materials that you need to produce the infrastructure. Um, even if you know how to do it and you have the money to finance it, um, how are you going to get those raw resources? Well, for the time being, the British are willing to sell it to us. Um, but if push comes to shove and war breaks out, they're just going to say, sorry, we're not going to sell this to you anymore. Right, so the Japanese at this point in the 1930s um, begin to think about developing, putting some money into de uh, developing an entirely new telecommunications delivery mechanism. This mechanism will be known as non-loaded cables. The Western industry standard was loaded cables. This means the use of coils inside cables to facilitate transmission speed and clarity. Right. The non-loaded cable method will be to remove those loaded cables and insert a vacuum tube. 
And thank God this is a podcast, because if I was in a classroom, you might ask me a follow-up question about the uh, technical details of this, and I would have to admit that I don't know. <laughs> that's, the, that's the extent of my knowledge. All right, take my word for it. Non-loaded cables were different than loaded cables. They're incompatible uh, 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 systems of telecommunications infrastructure. All right, where did this come from? Uh, well, you actually had Japanese engineers who were stationed in Korea and Manchuria in the 1920s, uh, oftentimes with the South Manchurian Railway Company, who were actively engaging in research and development to come up with a unique Japanese standard uh, that could eventually displace Western telecommunications uh, 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 infrastructure. Uh, one man in the late 1920s, Matsumai Shigeyoshi, a Japanese engineer stationed in Korea, uh, was experimenting precisely with a method of non-loaded cables to help uh, obtain a clearer conversation over the phone with his wife, who was living in Tokyo. Their child was sick, and he was engaged in frequent long-distance phone calls, and it was so hard to hear what was going on. And so he was experimenting with different types of cables. And when he makes one call one day, and on the other end, his wife says, when did you return to Tokyo? He knows that he's found an exciting technological alternative because his wife thinks he's in Tokyo because the line is so clear. In 1935, Matsumai Shigeyoshi says, quote, The non-loaded cable technology is not an adventurous technology, but a very sound one. For instance, when telephoning from Tokyo to Beijing, one absolutely can't have a satisfactory conversation using a loaded cable. Non-loaded cable network is the only method to achieve this objective. Japan's long-distance cable network is at the point of expansion right now, and turning down this technology will forever cause Japan regret. Not only is this a new system that can displace the Western system, it's better, it's clearer than Western cables. Non-loaded cables will eventually be adopted as the favored Japanese telecommunications infrastructural standard for Manchukuo. And one of the places where they have complete control and is seen sort of as our, 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 our showcase laboratory for showing what the world, what we're capable of. We liberated these poor Manchus from oppressive Chinese rule. We're helping them out as much as we can. Uh, we restored the poor, oppressed, uh, you know, deposed emperor, Pui, uh, to his rightful throne to rule over his people. Um, and now we've also developed, helped the, the Manchurians develop a brand new uh, pioneering technological standard that is better than the West. All right, we can throw off the shackles now of Western dependence and show the world we can innovate in technology without them. All right, the Minister of Communications in Tokyo, Nagai Ryutaro, 1939, he says the following, quote, As the longest cable in the world, completion of the Japan-Manchukuo connection telephone cable has become the focus of the attention of all countries. This cable is not an imitation of the West, but was completed with unique technology on the basis of the Ministry of Communications Research and Invention. It is significant as the pride of Japan. I believe that Japan, as the only leading color of, uh, <laughs> as the only leading country of colored people, has the great mission of building the new East Asia that has fallen upon our shoulders. Constructing an East Asian telecommunications network is the first step. Right, don't you love uh, the racial discourse once more? <laughs> We're the only leading country of colored people. 
because the Japanese are white and we we rule over colored people. Um, you know, this is the pride of Japan. It's the first step in a East Asian telecommunications network that we'd invented and we built and that everyone has to use now and everyone acknowledges it's better than the Western version. Had Japan not lost World War II, as with so many things, or if it wasn't unconditional surrender and they managed to sort of maintain influence in some areas, um, like Manchukuo, this vision probably would have succeeded. Okay? Um, and there might have been a different technological standard that persisted. As it was, it didn't. And it sort of, you know, becomes delegitimized with everything that the Japanese do. Nevertheless, the chief legacy of uh, the Japanese empire from a technological point of view is that they will provide, you know, the, the blueprint, often the earliest blueprint for so many of the technological infrastructure, uh, urban infrastructure, uh, transportation infrastructure um, that these successor states, once they regain their independence or in some cases gain it for the first time, uh, will then continue to build upon after 1945, usually after they've tried to whitewash and marginalize the original Japanese role um, in, in, in founding this, uh, or, you know, the original basis upon which uh, modern infrastructure is going to be built. All right, so that's sort of an uh, uh, interesting case study uh, with technology. All right, you're interested in this. There's a wonderful book by Dali Yang called uh, Technology of Empire, in which you can read in great, much greater detail uh, many of the things that I've been talking about with uh, uh, Japanese uh, technological infrastructure, the development of that during the empire and in the late 19th century. All right, now, the other thing that I sort of want to uh, piggyback on, combine with uh, telegraphy and uh, uh, telephony, is talk about uh, Japanese imperial film. Okay. One of the things that's always surprising, I have a whole lecture where I talk about Chinese film as well uh, in my modern Chinese history class. One of the things people always are surprised about is just how early film, cinema, uh, a, a domestic nativization of Western film uh, takes roots, uh, both in China and in uh, Korea and in Japan. You think, well, this technology was invented in Europe, uh, you know, among Euro-Americans and first developed there. Uh, they must be light years ahead of the rest of the world. No, they're not. 1896, you have your first motion picture screening in Japan. <laughs> Within the next decade, you already have Japanese newsmen who are in China filming scenes from the Russo-Japanese War so they can have footage for newsreels to show to audiences back home. Okay? It doesn't take long at all for this technology to be immediately disseminated uh, throughout all of these East Asian countries. Okay? And so by the time you've got an empire... Essentially, uh, you've already got a fairly flourishing and well-developed uh, Japanese film industry. Okay, um, now let's uh, uh, sort of blow by blow. Let's examine the Japanese Empire and how they uh, imposed or tried to develop or cater to uh, different audiences in different parts of the empire. Um, as usual, my focus here is not the Japanese home islands. All right, we're not going to be talking about major hits and whatnot uh, that came out in the 19-teens and the 1920s in Japan. Although, later in this podcast, uh, many episodes down the road, we will have occasion to talk about some of the more famous films of the post-war Japanese era, such as Rashomon and Godzilla. Uh, for now, though, let's just treat the colonies, because this is a focus on the Japanese empire. Um, let's start with Taiwan. All right, and here again, you're going to see how a major uh, uh, form of media... Um, 
in many ways parallels the political and economic contours of the Japanese empire. Okay, In Taiwan, as you might expect, the film industry was begun wholly by the Japanese from scratch. There was no pre-existing film industry in Taiwan. In this, as in so many other aspects, Taiwan uh, it tends to be seen as a blank slate. It's not a blank slate. There is some baggage, but it's not the same sort of baggage that you're going to have in Korea or in China. All right, You don't necessarily have entrenched pre-existing uh, 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 identity politics or industrial infrastructure, you know, these sorts of things that you have to compete with. Uh, you're able to bring in many of the things that you regard as fruits of industrial modernity uh, from, from scratch, more or less, as, uh, uh, certainly compared to other colonies that Japan's going to acquire later. Um, so the films that were produced in and about Taiwan uh, often portrayed it in one of two ways. Either one, it was a model colony, and films, whether they were fiction films or nonfiction films, they would, they, they, they would be stories or documentaries that often showed it as a, as, as a model colony. This is where our, our first colony. It was our first laboratory, and we're doing a wonderful bang-up job there. And look at what we're doing. Okay, Or it would sort of take a radically different exoticizing approach and portray Taiwan as a malarial savage swamp in which the aborigines, who chiefly live in the mountains by now, the non-Chinese aborigines, would play an outsized role far out of proportion to their actual demographic numbers. Uh, Taiwan aborigines will be a, a subject of constant fascination, constant fascination for the Japanese, um, you know, again, far outside of their actual economic, political, and cultural influence in Taiwan. All right, some examples of film titles that sort of cater to the latter category of Japanese films regarding Taiwan. In 1910, you have two films, one of them, The Current State of Conquering Taiwan's Native Rebels, uh, The Heroes of the Taiwan Extermination Squad, all right, you get an idea. Uh, most of the resistance that they're encountering, sort of the exciting going into the jungles um, and civilizing the people by any means whatsoever. It's not the Han who are planting rice on the, the uh, uh, lowlands of the western half of Taiwan. It's those in the south and the, in the east up in the central mountains. Uh, Japanese actor Sawamura Kunitaro uh, in 1942 uh, has an interesting uh, quote in which he talks about his expectations and the reality of what happened when he went to film movies in Taiwan. He said, quote, in 1942, shooting on location during a time of crisis in Taiwan caused considerable worry. Every one of our stereotypes about Taiwan, the aborigines, poisonous snakes, malaria, all came rushing before our eyes as if in a big close-up. We made sure to fill our suitcases with medicine. We filmed mostly in the mountains on the southern part of the island, the sort of place that made you think that something bad is going to happen. All right. Uh, as you can see, he's talking about, you know, when we go to Taiwan, we're not necessarily, you know, there, there, there's some films, uh, do documentaries mainly, and I show one of these documentaries in my class when I teach this. It's utterly fascinating. Um, if you're trying to show Taiwan as a model colony, you're usually showing the urban infrastructure that you've developed in the chiefly Chinese cities on the western lowlands. Uh, if there's any sort of adventure involved or glorification of the Japanese military, uh, exoticization, uh, Dankichi-like, you know, fun from the Japanese perspective, uh, with pejorative stereotypes and all this sort of stuff, that usually is set against the backdrop of the Aborigines somewhere in the mountains on the east coast or in the far south. And uh, uh, Kunitaro himself said that it turns out I was wrong. 
He said, quote, this is, just, this is one example of just how mistaken our cultural knowledge of Taiwan really was. I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I had no idea how Japanified the Taiwanese had become. Because all his images that were broadcast back home, he had only been exposed to the image of savage barbarians, uh, the aborigines in the mountains. He gets to Taiwan and he realizes, wow, we've actually done a pretty you know, thorough job of assimilating at least the cities and most of the Taiwanese themselves. Uh, this is a very Japanese colony now. Um, and he says, you know, it's civilized too. Uh, this is not at all the image that I got from the film industry uh, and the stereotypes that have been cultivated back home. Okay, um, so in Taiwan, uh, film was developed quite quickly. It was seen as the perfect indoctrination tool precisely to Japanify, to use the actor's word, uh, the Taiwanese. Uh, film screenings were often given for free out in the countryside. This is a great way to reach people uh, who aren't educated, who have to work all day long. The kids aren't able to go to a Japanese school. Uh, you don't have to be literate in Japanese to be able to uh, want to go watch a Japanese film. You know, if you're out in the countryside, this is going to be a pretty big event to have a motion picture screen for you in the 19-teens, 1920s, and 1930s. Um, and you can probably, you know, be entertained and probably slightly indoctrinated as well from the content of this film, even if you can't speak uh, uh, or understand Japanese or even Chinese at all, even if your only language is Taiwanese. All right, and the Japanese then oftentimes would go a step further, and they would facilitate discussions uh, after these public screenings to make sure that you know if you didn't understand anything or you took away the wrong message, we're going to make sure in your own language you understand precisely what the you you were supposed to take away uh, from this Japanese film production uh, uh, that that is associated with Taiwan. Now, during the 1920s. There was a brief flirtation uh, with mainland Chinese films, films produced chiefly in Shanghai by Chinese firms. Um, they said, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll experiment with importing, allowing some of these mainland Chinese films to be screened in Taiwan because we can make a good profit. Um, and culturally, there isn't much of a huge disconnect here. Um, they're naturally predisposed to enjoy some of these films that come from Shanghai. Um, but these eventually would be banned uh, after the Manchurian incident in, 19, in 1931, which leads to the takeover of Manchukuo. Many of the films on the mainland that are produced in Shanghai will uh, carry overt, not just you know subtle, but overt anti-Japanese sentiment. And these themes will be worked into many mainland Chinese films. And once the Japanese realized that this could inflame anti-Japanese sentiment among the Taiwanese, they banned films that come from the mainland uh, after 1931. What about Korea? Korea already has a native film industry, and they already have a American film presence. See, again, with politics and the economy and whatnot, you had the exact same situation. You have pre-existing uh, sense of identity, uh, some sense of political autonomy, and the foreigners got there first. You already have American missionaries. Uh, you know, American films already play in the theater by the time that the Japanese formally take over Korea by 1910. Uh, you can already see the elements are in place where it's not going to be as smooth a ride as the Japanese had in Taiwan. Um, and it was contentious from the get-go. Uh, we know that oftentimes when uh, uh, cinemas, uh, the screen of films, uh, especially oftentimes Japanese films, they would lead to brawls. They would lead to fights and fisticuffs uh, when you had mixed Korean and Japanese audiences um, at some films. Uh, in 1912, uh, we have a record. In 1912, there was a brawl after, a, 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 I think it was an American movie was being screened, and it involved uh, a, a, a boxing competition between a Western-style boxer and a Japanese judo fighter. Um, and uh, the Koreans in the audience, uh, we know they cheered 
when the Western boxer, the American boxer, uh, knocked down the Japanese judo fighter. And then when the Japanese judo fighter got up and knocked down the Western boxer, the Japanese audience uh, would cheer. And this would lead to obvious tensions in the audience when this sort of stuff happens. That always reminds me. I'm reminded when I was in uh, my, my undergrad in my uh, last year, actually, my last year of undergrad, I was a senior. I took my second year Chinese class. I got into Chinese fairly late, actually. Kids today, um, when they're learning Chinese, dang, they're often sometimes they have high fluency by the time they finish high school. Not back in my day. Uh, it was my last year of college before I had any sort of good, uh, you know, uh, basic fluency in Chinese. Anyways, in my second year Chinese class, I remember my teacher, uh, Chen Lao she, I don't know why she was telling us a story, but at one point in between Chinese language exercises, she, was, she had some pretext where she said that when she was a kid, she used to love Bruce Lee films. She said, oh, I loved Bruce Lee films. And we're like, oh, why? She says, it was the only time I could go to the theater uh, and watch a Chinese guy kicking white boy ass. And he said, I loved it. <laughs> and this reminds me of precisely the same sentiment. Often these sort of things, uh, will, these cinematic images, these characters, uh, we like to interpret them as national allegories and read ourselves into them, project our own identities into them. Um, and then, you know, with obvious results when certain things happen in the film that then, oh, that's, that's my country beating their country, things like that. Okay. Um, later on in the 1930s, this continued. Uh, the silent movie Ben Hur was uh, 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 shown in Korean cinema. Uh, Jewish oppression at the hands of the Romans. Many Korean audiences and critics link that to Korean oppression at the hands of the Japanese. And screenings of Ben Hur in Korea in the 1930s were known to set off urban riots to the point where the Japanese authorities actually recut and edited the film, essentially censored it uh, to make sure that uh, particularly inflammatory scenes would not be seen by the Korean. All right. However, also in Korea, right, it's, not, it, it, it's not so simple as, oh, in Taiwan, it's all flowers and roses, and in Korea, it's all blood and violence. Um, no, Koreans, uh, it, 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 it's very complex. All right. Uh, Koreans would get some space and some money to produce their own films and create a budding Korean film industry uh, with the assistance of Japanese capital and Japanese sensorial oversight. But nevertheless, films that would feature uh, Korean identity and Korean culture, All right? largely for a domestic Korean audience. However, this Japanese realization by the 1920s and the 1930s that we need to do something to get the Koreans on our side. We need to be a little more proactive here. One way we can do that is by helping to finance, proactively going out of our way to finance Korean films that showcase Korean you know, subjects that the Korean audiences identify with, not just Japanese imposed, like on Taiwan. All right, things that they actually want to see, that, that they, they see themselves in them, and they can actually imagine that this is wholly Korean-made and owned. Uh, but then, you know, in subtle ways, we'll have uh, Japanese characters or references to Japan that portray us not so sinisterly as usual. Um, now, these Korean films became well-known by the 1930s, and I show one of these to my class. Again, it's the only one where you can get subtitles and watch it for free on YouTube. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, by the 1930s, the, the, these Japanese Korean made films, uh, were being heavily criticized, uh, being heavily criticized, uh, in Japan. Um, 1941, we have an advertisement in film criticism magazine 
saying, uh, are you apathetic about films from the Korean Peninsula? Since the first were produced 20 years ago, they have continued their brave struggle amidst poor conditions. Now is the time that we Japanese should watch these films in the spirit of understanding and cooperation. Here you're seeing the sense of Japanese in the home islands. They're being told, you know, watch these Korean films. It's one of our colonies. We're trying to uplift the Koreans. We're making a big uh, uh, in, in investment of time and money and understanding uh, to try to foster a domestic Korean audience. Um, and uh, they may not be the highest quality, but we should try to understand the Koreans better and give them space to have their own industry where they feel like they have some stake in the existing uh, order. But these films were often criticized. Korean, uh, Korean author Jeong Hyakuchu in 1935 he adapted a tale of Chunyang, a very uh, popular uh, Korean folktale. Uh, he adapted it for one of the first talking films in Korea, reflecting on the Korean film industry that was fostered under the Japanese. He said, quote, frankly, I had never seen a Korean film until now that didn't leave me with a sick feeling of embarrassment, a feeling similar to that of having some dark family secret discovered by a stranger. For me, all Korean films seem to contain this fatal flaw, whether they, produced for, whether they were produced for audiences in Japan or not. So the Korean film industry that is uh, uh, partially sponsored by the Japanese in the 1920s and 30s, um, it's indicative of an effort for the Japanese to sort of nativize their imperial rule and have tried to appeal to the Koreans. Um, but you could still see that many of these things were not well received. But the fact that there is an effort to pursue this initiative in the first place speaks to the complexities of imperial rule. Okay, it's, a, it's always usually some sort of a gray area, not black and white. And in Korea, we're seeing that as well. All right. Um, and these are things that are easily forgotten because once Japan loses the war, all this sort of stuff is washed away as, oh, that was collaborationist, that's delegitimized, de the conquerors had their hand in that, this is not Korean cinema. Uh, well, this is what Koreans were able to produce for 35 years <laughs> during the 20th century. That's not an insignificant amount of time. Okay, and it is Koreans. This is, this, is the, this is the resources and opportunities that you had at that time period. Manchuria. All right. What's going to be different about Manchuria? Um, different, uh, distinct from Taiwan and Korea, Manchuria will excite the imagination of Japanese filmmakers. Okay, the wide romantic plains would strike a deep chord in the Japanese collective imagination. This is our American West. This is our frontier. This is the new world. Vast open spaces that we can develop, make a huge profit, create a new nation, create a new people, test our new telecommunications infrastructure. Manchuria has it all. This is Japan's manifest destiny. A blank canvas to fill up with Japanese settlers and adventure, uh, foster oppressed people and give them their own nation. Um, you know, this, this, this sort of uh, approach. All right. 1937, the Japanese helped to establish the Manchurian Motion Picture Company. This is already, you've got Manchukuo has been created for five years. Uh, the Manchurian Motion Picture Company will have a monopoly on uh, cinem cinematic production, and they will often use local Japanese and, and uh, Jap uh, Chinese uh, talent, uh, actors. There's three major themes that you'll see come out of the films that the Manchurian Motion Picture Company will uh, uh, finance 
and uh, direct over the next eight years. All right, this is going to be a major film industry that, again, will sort of be wiped out of the pages of history after 1945. What are what are these three major themes that you see in this cinema? One, uh, we're helping to revive China's faded glory. Two, uh, the films would try to destigmatize cooperation or collaboration, depending on your perspective, with the Japanese. And three, they would serve as for sort of a Japanese-oriented uh, Orientalist entertainment. Remember, we talked about Japan's Orient. Uh, the film industry in Manchuria will also cater to that uh, uh, commercial uh, sector as well. So let me actually give you some examples from some films. Uh, the, these films have been preserved quite well and studied by historians who look at this sort of thing. Um, and I can actually give you s some example of the content of some of the films that the um, uh, Manchurian Motion Picture Company created from 1937 to 1945. Let's begin with a 1940 film uh, called Vow in the Desert. Vow in the Desert. It includes this, this, this scene. Uh, of dialogue between a Japanese engineer and one of his Chinese co-workers, one of his Chinese colleagues, uh, out surveying the land for various development projects. Um, and they, they, they see the, a, a remnant of the Great Wall out in southern Manchuria. And the Japanese engineer says to his Chinese colleague, quote, whenever I think of the planning that went into this Great Wall, it makes me realize how extraordinary the power of man is, this Chinese colleague. Hmm, perhaps. All in all, though, this is just a useless colossus, Japanese engineer responds. No, it's not. It's the rugged power of man. Think how much effort was poured into it brick by brick, Chinese colleague. But you can't drive a truck over it, Japanese engineer. A truck? No, I guess you couldn't do that. Young old man, why don't we build a great wall that you could drive a truck on? A modern great wall that could stand up to this one. We'll build a new great wall at the foot of that mountain. All right, here you go. A rousing uh, uh, scene of dialogue for Manchurian audiences, for Japanese audiences back home. And remember, these films will be disseminated throughout the Japanese Empire, Southeast Asia, Korea, Taiwan, the South Seas. If you go to a cinema, this is what's on tap. And the Manchurian Film Company is producing the majority of these films. Uh, the idea is, is that China, uh, there's some admiration for what China accomplished in the past, the Great Wall, but uh, it doesn't excite the passions today because it's become useless in the modern industrial world. So what do we need to do? We need to revitalize China by building a new Great Wall, one that could actually facilitate a, a, a new superhighway that cars could actually drive on, not just to block horses out. All right. Uh, this, this is putting forth a vision of Chinese-Japanese cooperation. There's a Chinese guy involved and a Japanese guy involved. The Japanese guy is the chief engineer. He's in charge. Uh, but nevertheless, he gains inspiration from his Chinese colleague about how we're going to modernize China. All right. What about destigmatizing collaboration? In another scene in this film, a son accuses his father of working with the Japanese companies to run roughshod over Chinese, cult, uh, Chinese culture. He says, you're working with them? To help build a canal through a cemetery, a local Chinese cemetery? Remember, this is a film in a Jap Japanese-run Manchurian film company. This is, this is an approved scene. Potential criticism of the Japanese development projects running roughshod over Chinese cemeteries, Chinese culture. The son says, quote, to his father, I never thought you would let yourself be seduced by the Japanese into approving the canal construction without at least knowing that they're going to destroy a graveyard. Are you just going to let the Chinese people be sacrificed? Father's response. Is that the kind of man you think I am? I joined up with Japanese capital and technology precisely because I want China to prosper. Well, there you go. 
right? The Japanese, you know, you might be surprised here. Wow, the Japanese are allowing this sort of dialogue to be in their film that Chinese audiences will see. Uh, yes, they are. Yes, they are. Uh, and criticism of the Japanese potentially disrespecting the Chinese is merely a springboard to refuting those accusations and saying, no, 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 only by working together, you know, cooperating or collaborating with the Japanese are we going to be able to revive China, all right? Like the Chinese, like the Koreans in, in the Korean Peninsula, all right? Uh, the Japanese are coming to the realization that if we're going to be here for the long term, we do have to make con some concessions to Chinese nationalism or Korean nationalism. We have to give them a bone to chew on and say, you know what, you can achieve your national desires, the desires of your own identity community, your cultural community, but you can only achieve them by working together with us. Independently, you can't. You won't have the resources. You'll be swallowed up by the stresses of the modern world. Remember the mandate system talked about the stresses of the modern world and the countries that couldn't stand up to it? Um, and we're, we're, we're going to help you. We're going to help you. And the films are sending that message. What about Orientalist Entertainment? Oh, in 1940, we also got a big filmed musical, The Monkey King. Now, if you know anything about Chinese history, you know that The Monkey King is based on the famous uh, historical novel, uh, Journey to the West, about this uh, monkey that has magical powers, uh, spiritual powers. He accompanies the Tang Dynasty monk Shenzang as he uh, treks to India to get original Sanskrit Buddhist sutras to create more accurate Chinese translations and better understand the Buddhist dharma. Uh, this is a, a very popular tale uh, with all kinds of folktale elements to it, widely told in oral uh, 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 storytelling circles. Um, and, you know, books would be made off of it. The Chinese would have their own productions, comic books and whatnot. Uh, the Japanese have their own comic books. They inherited this story as well. And in that sense, it's also sort of theirs, even though it takes place in China, sort of like a student in an American university reading a Greek tragedy. You're, you, you are told this is part of your culture, but you don't have a, you, you, you've never actually even really been to Greek but you still feel like you have some sort of ownership claim over Greek uh, dramatic themes and productions and storylines. Uh, what do you get in this big mu musical in The Monkey King? You get the Japanese idealizing the ancient Chinese past and fusing it with modern Japanese sensibilities, all with fairly demeaning Orientalist tropes that are geared towards a Japanese audience that is predisposed to see the Chinese as backward. All right, uh, the China will be represented with sort of Dankichi-like oriental music that isn't actually music that is played in China, sort of like the, the uh, tunes that you might see in Hollywood productions about China. -na 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 -na. You know, this sort of stuff, you know, very orientalist. Uh, this is what we think that you guys actually listen to, sort of like Chinese food in America uh, often bears very little resemblance to Chinese food in China. Uh, the props, the harem dancers, uh, costumes were borrowed from uh, uh, Western productions like the Arabian Nights. All the actors are singing and talking in Japanese. Um, many Chinese audiences who saw the Monkey King uh, found it to be uh, woefully insulting. They said the costumes, the dialogue, uh, this, is, this, is, this is a version of Orientalism, you degrading our culture to satisfy your own stereotypes back home, your own pejorative stereotypes that you have about China. It actually bears very little resemblance to our own productions of the Monkey King. Uh, one Chinese intellectual in a magazine uh, in 1940 after the movie came out said, quote, Japanese are certain that all they have to do is put on a long Chinese sleeved gown and immediately they are transformed into Chinese. Yet the gowns that they choose are not at all Chinese-like and they only make the Japanese look badly out of place. 
and the Chinese spoken by Japanese actors is not good. The audience cannot understand what they are saying most of the time, even when they had dialogue in Chinese. Uh, it was spoken by Japanese actors, um, and it would have a thick Japanese accent, and you know they wouldn't get the tones down, and it would sound terrible. And he's saying, this is what you give us to, to consume? Uh, Japanese-accented Chinese and Japanese dialogue and the wrong costumes, the wrong makeup, all to satisfy your erroneous conceptions about the, uh, about the Chinese. Right, and this wasn't unique uh, to productions in China as well. Orientalist entertainment, this idea that we can just, you know, uh, put on a costume and, you know, voila, we can represent other people's cultures. Uh, what we might say as a form of blackface in our own culture today, to use a term we're more familiar with. Um, in 1943, uh, Japan also oversaw the production of a film that took uh, uh, Indian-British tensions as its subject and was uh, showing, I think it was a historical film, uh, reenacting uh, Indian liberation movements against the British. Um, and they had Indian liberation actors, uh, which were basically Japanese, uh, who then, you know, pretty much put on blackface, you know, darkened their face and uh, what they imagined uh, uh, someone from India would actually look like. Uh, look, you know, we're Indian. We don't have to hire an Indian actor uh, to, uh, to uh, do this. This is, this is a sort of exoticized Orientalist entertainment uh, mixing with the uh, uh, political message that Japan wants as well. One other thing that you often saw is that uh, the uh, uh, Chinese cast, the people who were cast in uh, roles and they were actually Chinese, they weren't Japanese because a lot of these were mixed productions, uh, very often, uh, overwhelmingly, the uh, Chinese actors would all be actresses. Uh, it was hard for a Chinese man to get a role in a Japanese-funded production. All the male actors were going to be Japanese. And so what you often ended up getting was Chinese women being paired with a Japanese man. Um, and that's what the love interest would usually be. Um, you know, there would be a Japanese man and his love interest would be, or the love interest of a Chinese woman would be the Japanese man in one way or the other. Uh, their interactions would sort of reflect uh, hot political debates and issues that people that were on people's minds and they are resolved through a romantic relationship uh, uh, involving a Chinese woman and a Japanese man. All right, what about China itself? All right, unoccupied China, southern China, all right, the Shanghai region, uh, the domestic Chinese audience outside of Manchukuo. Okay, uh, here Japan found that uh, they had to compete uh, still with Hollywood. You had to compete with American uh, already having set up a film industry in Korea in 1910, uh, but that's still early on in the game. Uh, in, in China, Hollywood was able to develop uh, uninhibited throughout the 19-teens and the 1920s, and you know the center is in Shanghai as well. Um, you know the most people. In China, when you went to a cinema, when you went to you're in Shanghai and you go to the cinema to watch a film, uh, you know, seven times out of ten, you're probably watching a Hollywood production with Chinese subtitles or has been dubbed over in Chinese. And you know, if it's a silent film, obviously it's just going to be subtitles. Or sometimes silent films don't have any need for subtitles whatsoever. Okay, so Hollywood has a stranglehold on the Chinese domestic audience. People don't often realize this. If you go in, if you uh, are familiar with Chinese film studies today and whatnot, you'll find almost all university scholars are studying uh, Chinese uh, financed and Chinese made, uh, you know, pure Chinese produced films from the 1920s and 1930s. 
and they uh, study these things and hold them up as if this is your your Chinese cinema uh, from the you know the Chinese national cinema in the 1920s and 30s, without realizing that those films actually were a, a minority of the films that were actually available to Chinese audiences, and most Chinese audiences were not watching pure Chinese productions, sort of the art house films. They were watching Hollywood productions. Right? They were watching Gone with the Wind. They were watching Charlie Chaplin. And Japanese film studios desperately wanted to replace Hollywood in China, uh, but found it very hard to do. They found that uh, major Chinese actors would not work with the Japanese uh, outside of uh, Manchukuo for fear of being labeled collaborators and not being able to get another gig in a Chinese film studio. Okay, um, And Japan found that it was tough to break in. All right, you know, you've already uh, uh, made inroads with telecommunications infrastructure and all these other things, but Hollywood was sort of um, a, a fairly big hurdle to try to jump over. Nevertheless, what you do find is that uh, there was a healthy respect, uh, mutual respect between uh, Japanese filmmakers, Japanese studios, and Hollywood filmmakers for one another. Hollywood moguls were anxious about uh, the specter, the uh, prospect of having to compete with the Japanese film industry. Uh, I'll read you a quote from Frank Capra on Japanese films that uh, uh, he thought were going to replace Hollywood films throughout occupied Asia uh, during the war. He said he, he saw one of these Japanese films and he says, quote, We can't beat this kind of thing. We make a film like theirs maybe once in a decade. We haven't got the actors. All right, very anxious. Hollywood has been around for a while. We have a good share of the market. Uh, but he was afraid. He said, you know, a Japanese-run production uh, can be very sophisticated. And they can match us in quality with their productions. And their productions may cater better to an Asian audience. Um, it didn't actually happen. But here we see a major uh, 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 Hollywood director expressing his fears and anxieties that uh, Hollywood should be scared of Japan. You didn't know that they were going to lose the war, and you thought the war might further facilitate their takeover, their cinematic takeover of Asia. Okay. However, the overall disparity in resources and the quality of films between the Americans and the Japanese became more apparent as World War II dragged on. And for some Japanese, American films were the clearest indicator of American power and strength and the inevitability that the Americans would win a war if we went to war with them. Now, let me read you a quote uh, from Japanese director Ozu Yasujiro in 1947, reflecting back on things that he saw during the war years. He said, quote, Some of the films I enjoyed most were William Wyler's The Westerner, Wuthering Heights, John Ford's The Grapes of Wrath, and Tobacco Road. Those directors hadn't lost their touch even in wartime. That made quite an impression on us. Even their national propaganda films were better. Watching Fantasia, I became worried, thinking to myself, this is bad. It was then that I realized what a terribly awesome foe we were fighting. I love this quote. You have a Japanese director saying, when Fantasia, what is Fantasia? 42, 43, it's in the middle of the war. Uh, watching Fantasia, the Disney film, right? Um, I became worried thinking this is bad. All right. He's realizing the, the relative strength, access to resources, the ability to fight a long war, to him is communicated most directly through the quality of films, the resources that a country can put in to their cinematic productions. And he says, if a studio in America can produce something like Fantasia, 
you know, this incredibly, this feature-long, highly sophisticated, revolutionary cartoon in the middle of a war, then the United States is far stronger and more resourceful than we ever thought. We're in big trouble. All right. Other ones, other uh, memoirs, and I had my students read one of these. Uh, one guy says, uh, it was when I saw Gone with the Wind. You know, Gone with the Wind made a huge impression on me. He said, as the war dragged on, Japanese films, we had to begin to cut out the credits at the end of a film. Or at the beginning, sometimes credits were at the beginning of a film back then. Uh, he said, we had to cut out the credits. We couldn't even say who the actors were. Because we were running out of film room. Uh, we were running out of film reel. We had no more actual physical film. It was all being rationed. We didn't have the resources to create more film. It was being diverted into other industries. Um, and they're making four-hour historical epics like Gone with the Wind? We can't compete with this. The relative strength of the countries are reflected in the resources that are available to invest in your cinematic production. Yet another example of how perceptions of the strength or weakness of an empire could be determined by manifestations of technology in the popular mind. All right, now we understand some of the cultural and technological prisms through which imperial competition throughout Asia was mediated. Now... Let's nail down the logistics of the Great War itself. Can't avoid it any longer. We know it's coming. All right. Next episode, the Japanese invasion of Asia, in episode 51 of Beyond Huaxia. <laughs> <laughs>